Hi, thanks for listening to No Cure for Curiosity. I'm Shawnee Luft, the Associate Dean of General Education at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. The purpose of this podcast is to promote the value of a broad liberal arts education, including the ability to draw connections across different areas of study. A few weeks ago, Netflix released this new series, The History of Swear Words. It was narrated by Nicolas Cage, and it was kind of a lighthearted exploration of curse words. They brought in comedians and linguists and scientists and historians to talk about what they know and have studied about curse words. So I thought it'd be fun to watch the series and then talk about curse words with two of my colleagues. Ross Tangadal is Assistant Professor of English and Director of the Cornerstone Press at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. His research focuses on American print and publishing culture, bibliography, textual editing, and in particular the works of Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and writers of the American Midwest. I'm also going to be talking to Dona Warren. Dona has her PhD in philosophy from the University of Minnesota and is currently a philosophy professor at UWSP, as well as the director of the Critical Thinking Center. I should say up front that in talking about these words, Dona and Ross and I are going to say the words. We're not going to use any racial slurs, but we are going to say words that are offensive, are uh, sometimes considered derogatory. There's a big debate in journalism right now about the difference between use versus mention. I think that distinction is important, but not everybody does. If you're uncomfortable with George Carlin's seven dirty words, this may not be the episode for you. Ross and Donut and I talked about swear words for two hours. We had a fantastic conversation. I've edited it down to about a half an hour, and I hope you enjoy it. So, you ready to get started? Yeah. Excellent. You're supposed to say, fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Did you guys watch any of this Netflix show called The History of Swear Words? Yes. Yep. It was this six-episode documentary, and each episode is about one word. So there's an episode about fuck, shit, bitch, dick, pussy, and damn. <laughs> My first question, did you have you watched them all? I watched the first four, and it was late at night, and I started falling asleep. So I might have slept through pussy and damn. <laughs> I'm, bl- I'm blushing, by the way, through the podcast. Right. So th- that's actually a good place to start. What is our line for certain words? And the place I want to begin is actually to ask you, each of you, where you're both from, because I'm very interested in our geographies and then how that relates to words we're comfortable with. So Ross, can you start off, uh, tell us a little bit about where you're from and what your uh, background is. So I was born and raised in a small town in Montana, in northeastern Montana. So it's just south of Canada and just west of North Dakota. So we're way up in the corner. Uh, rural farm community. Uh, we have a farm, a 4,000 acre farm and ranch. My dad runs Angus beef cattle, has done it for you know 50 years. So I grew up in an agricultural, uh, a small rural agricultural community in Montana and North Dakota. Donna, we'll go to you next. I am from um, Moorhead, Minnesota, and many people don't know where that is. So I say it's right across the river from Fargo, North Dakota. So exactly. So I am on right on the other side of North Dakota from where Ross was raised. Fargo, Moorhead was, I would say, a small city when I was growing up. Fargo in particular is a lot larger now. So I would, I, I'm, I'm wondering if I would describe it as rural. I would really not describe it as rural. Both of my parents were college professors. And so I grew up right across the street from the university where they taught. But certainly you didn't have to go far out of town, like out not mile or two out of town and you hit farmland. So it was that kind of interesting transitional space between small city and rural. That was one of the things I think about curse words I find really interesting is 
our where we're raised and where we're from, I think, can kind of determine what words we're comfortable with and what words we're not comfortable with, and then where it's appropriate to curse. Do you, either of you have thoughts about that, about your backgrounds and your geographies and its its relationship to cursing? You know, on a farm, there's an awful lot of swearing. You make up swear words. Um, I'm surprised in the documentary during the episode on shit, he said shit ass. And that's a word that my dad has used to describe a cow that he is angry at many, many times. Uh, and even as a child, I'm shit ass, what is shit ass. Um, but then it's funny. It's almost like we'd get back into town and dad would sort of shut that off. You know, the, the, you talk one way out on the farm and then you're, you're kind of back in town and, and you talk a little bit differently when you're back in town. The other part of this I was really interested in asking both about is your childhoods. Swear words, they, they are like magical. <laughs> like they, particularly when you're a kid, the more you tell a kid, you know, these words are dangerous, they're off limits, they uh, accomplish something that other words don't accomplish. Donna, do you have any particular thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I, um, my grandmother would always say, it could doozy. And that meant God damn it. And I don't know where that word came from. <laughs> I don't know if she made it up. So, you know, she would drop something on the kitchen floor. She'd break a plate. Ikka doozy. I can still hear her. Ikka doozy. And her mother used to say gallus. So occasionally there would be a gallus, which is probably a corrupted Germanic something or other, because that was the language that they spoke. So I did hear those, <laughs> but nothing that other people outside my family would recognize. It's like profanity. Donna, have you ever said Ikaduzi in I your have. life for any reason? <laughs> there, there are certain things that that's like the only thing that can capture it. It's not even like a, because it's not bad enough to be like a God damn it. There's a certain, just like a playful frustration to Ikaduzi. How about you, Ross? The thoughts about your, about your childhood and curse words? One thing that was never said was was fuck. Uh, that was that was never. I grew up with lots of people, big family, lots of folks, but the f word was something that was never uttered. Um, Jesus Christ, that one was plentiful. Uh, oh, for God's sake, that was also that's the ikaduzi of mine. Is oh, for God's sake. <laughs> My folks, though, they're not. They don't swear a lot unless you could get away with it by quoting movies. <laughs> if you were if you were quoting a movie, it was funny. So that was like a comedy routine. You can imagine, Shawnee and Donna, I was very performative as a child. <laughs> I can't see that at all. Right? And my family is very performative. So we'd always do sketches and line readings. And so that's when it was okay to say things like the F word or you know, more blue language because you're being funny. You know, it's not out of anger or it's it's not out of rage. It's out. Yeah. It's, a, it's a routine, right? Swear words have this interesting, I think there's issues of region that come in as we talked about, age, gender, and then class. Yeah. Right. And so swear words have like all of these cultural uh, embedded signifiers. That class issue is really interesting to me. That's really interesting because I had a conversation with my mother about this. She was talking about it because she is a little more prone to swear than I am. Um, she will say shit more than I will. We were referring to this and just sort of reflecting on it. And then she said, but you didn't hear me swear when, when you were growing up, did you? And I said, no. You don't swear much now, but I certainly never heard you swear when I was growing up. And she said, no, I didn't swear when I was teaching. And I said, no, I don't swear when I'm teaching either, <laughs> like in the classroom, right? And, she, and I said, you mean like in the, when you're in the classroom, you didn't swear? And she said, no, before I retired, I didn't swear. And she definitely thought that it would be inappropriate for her when she was a mathematics professor to swear in any context. And I think that was very much, that that's clearly a class thing, right? When she was inhabiting 
the role of university professor in the community. She did not swear in any context. I don't know if this is where you want to go, Shani, but this is a good, I've got a good transition from Donna's point because her, her parents were professors. And I, and I grew up again in a blue collar background, you know, dad's a farmer and he was an agronomist, you know, a fertilizer engineer. He worked in an elevator after he farmed. And then my mom's a nurse and RN. Your dad was a fertilizer engineer. Yeah. Your dad knew shit. He knows shit. He knows shit. <laughs> shit is just, you know, it's nitrogen and phosphorus and, oh, he knows his shit. So I grew up in a, you know, a blue collar. There's no professors around. And when I started teaching, I'd swear, not like awful, just a screed of terrible F-bombs. But every so often, you just sort of you know, kind of you know, place one in there. It's, it's kind of intentional. It, it's for effect. It, it jolts the student out of, I've tried to be a little bit better and not swear as much and be a little more cautious. But at the same time, it clearly became kind of a, a leveling agent so that students recognize that like, I wasn't this ivory tower better than you person. I'm just some guy that can swear too. Just, you know, there was something really equalizing to some degree about that. And even now at point, as I continue in my career here, every so often a well-placed, as they call it in the documentary, a swear. I've never heard it called that before. Wait, what did you hear? What word would you use? Curse words or swear words or bad words. Actually, they were bad words. Uh, Very Protestant of us. They're bad words. There's good words and there's bad Mm -hmm. words. I can't see myself sort of totally removing all of the blue language out of my, out of my teaching, because there's a way for me to communicate with students a certain way when they need that kind of communication. Also, I think it's to try to normalize myself so that like your mother, Donna was saying, no, I'm, I'm going to be a certain way when I'm, I I will be this person. Mm -hmm. I do that to some degree, but also I want them to kind of see myself. And I don't know if that's a different generation of teacher, if that's a different generation of professor, like we're, we're more allowed to be ourselves a little more in front of students. One of the things that fascinated me about swear words that they get into a little bit on the show is a swear word can refer to something negative, but also refer to something positive, Mm -hmm. right? If you can refer to shit, this dinner tastes like shit, but you could also say, this is good shit. Mm -hmm. The word is so malleable. It could be the opposite of itself. It's amazing to me that words can sort of like take on the opposite of their meaning and still communicate something. That's why I went to an English professor in this conversation. Well, the wheels are spinning. I mean, I mean, fuck is the most malleable of all of them. It, it can take on every, I think it can actually take on, I haven't heard of fuckly, which would be an adverb, <laughs> adverbial usage, um, but it can take on almost every, every, every single part of speech. And so there is something about fuck that is very powerful in that way. Now, shit is interesting because, yeah, when we talk about the, you know, that's the shit. Well, then what exactly are we sort of, by the way, that, the more I think about it, I think being called a piece of shit might be the, the worst, the worst thing you can be called because if someone means it, you know, you know what you are, you're, you're a piece of shit. It's like, wow, Mm -hmm. that's like, that's like the worst. Like you can call me an asshole. You can call me a fuckhead. Like dipshit's also a favorite, but something about being called a a piece of shit is really like sharp. Mm -hmm. That uh, can we just hold on that for a second? I really want to focus on, I love your point that being called a piece of shit, it really communicates something different than being called an asshole. If you were to ask me what the worst thing you could be called is, my first thought was being called a motherfucker. Nah, never. Is that worse? Oh, no. Why? I don't know. Maybe it's the sanitation of motherfucker. Like, that just doesn't... Maybe it's because fuck has become so ubiquitous and you can use it in so many ways. It's lost some of its sharpness. Whereas piece of shit, mm, dipshit, mm, there's something there that just like 
degrades. It just pulls you, pulls you down. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We were just talking before about like how a, a swear word can also be a positive thing. And there's a way that you could call someone a motherfucker in, in a way that's almost complimentary. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That motherfucker actually did it. Motherfucker. Oh, yeah. But not piece of shit. You can't do that. Right. That piece of shit actually did it. That's not going to work. It no. drags you down. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think that's right. And it's interesting. I think the I, I, I don't think there's anything that I could say better than you just how it hits you. Right. I, I agree. Motherfucker doesn't hit in the same way as piece of shit hits. <laughs> Your point about piece of shit, I'll be thinking about this for days. Also, why does it have to be a piece? Somehow being a piece makes it worse. Yes, it does. You're not even the whole shit. <laughs> um, back back to the great purveyor of masculine swear words, um, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, playwright. For those that do not know, American playwright David Mamet. Um, he wrote a special part for Alec Baldwin in the film version, which is really excellent from 1992. And Baldwin plays this this version, this man named Blake. And he, and it's, it's just a swear-laden, it's very mammoth. The swear words become kind of poetry and, and the sharpness. It's all about the sound and the timber of the swear words. Alec Baldwin's doing his shtick. He's going around basically demeaning everyone. This is like David Mamet's thesis, right? Men demean each other. That's like life. And at the end, he goes, he's talking about his watch. Like, you know, I, I got this watch. This watch costs more than your car. And Ed Harris is like, you know, I'm not going to take any more of this shit. And he goes, you know, sit down, pal. Eat shit. You are shit. So hit the bricks, pal, because you're going out. So you're shit. Not the shit. You're shit. Right. There's just, it, it's when swear words can, at least from, from as an English professor, from sort of a literary perspective, when, when swear words can be utilized wholly as part of the language. They're not just exclamatory. They're not just blue words that are meant to shock and and um make you or they're almost they're transgressive it, it's a it's a transgressive thing and it's about at least for mammoth demeaning to to such a degree that there is no build-up there's no coming back from from that kind of immense masculine demeaning right there that movie you're right is uh is like the just a poetic exploration of curse words. It There's is. so many lines from that movie. At one point, someone asks Alec Baldwin, what's your name? And Alec Baldwin responds, what's my name? Fuck you! That's my name. <laughs> and Jack Lemmon, at the end of the movie, is playing Shelley Levine, and he goes to Kevin Spacey, who's playing Williamson, the office director, and he goes, you know, as you say, he's picking his teeth, and Lemmon goes, you're a real piece of shit, Williamson. See? And it's just, a, it's an automatic kind of, I don't know. Yeah, Mammoth. Swear King. No, nobody, no one plays the piano like Mammoth. There's a way, I, I don't know if this works in reverse, um, where men undermine other men by calling them female. Right. Yeah. Right? Like the word uh, bitch. Yeah. Right? Those are words. Or pussy or cunt. Yeah. Because I, I think the difference, I think that both bitch and pussy occupy a space which is similar to the N word. Not quite. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's words that particularly bitch women can call other women and it's different than a man yes. using it. Yes, absolutely. Especially cunt. I mean, I think cunt is even closer. I mean, but that that woman would not call another woman that probably. Never. Unless, never. No. Never. No. That's Well, not in the United States. In in uh, Great Britain, 
Cunt oh, is right. a very right. common word. That's right. Um, but but I don't. I want you to stay on that topic because what I find really interesting about bitch, like the word slut, like the N word, is the way in which they've been reclaimed. Right. Mm-hmm. There's an Alanis Morissette song. I'm a bitch. <laughs> right. I'm a bitch. I'm a lover. I'm a child. I'm a mother. That's uh, not Alanis Morissette. That's somebody not, else. It's not Alanis Morissette. Did she cover it? Probably. <laughs> I'll I'll look it up while you're talking. Continue. All right. Um, uh, so there are certain, like the word slut, there are certain words that it seems like are trying to be reclaimed or are being reclaimed by a group to be redefined, to, to diminish their power. Yeah. I, I think personally, I think bitches been that. Meredith Brooks, Ross writes in the chat. My Google says Alanis Morissette sung this song. I wonder if, is it possible that the internet has led me astray? No. Never. Never. <laughs> I mean, it's in Wikipedia, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I think <laughs> I think check my sources. I have I have female friends who will unapologetically um refer to themselves as a bitch. Mm-hmm. Either in general or describing their behavior in a certain circumstance. I was being a bitch that day or right. right. And it's not I was being a bad person. Bitch in that context is or or in general if it's I'm a bitch, usually in the mouth of my friends. It means I am a strong woman who stands up for herself in sometimes socially inappropriate ways, but the fault there lies squarely on the part of the social norms, right? I am behaving in ways that would be acceptable if I were a man, but I'm not a man, so now I am a bitch. In that context, bitch can be um, something you want to be. It means you're strong. It means you're assertive. It means you're all of those things that in a man would be praised. But what's, but what's interesting, just in terms of like another level, even under that interpretation, that reclaiming of what, what bitch means, what we are saying then is the word bitch is good if it applies to a woman who is acting in a traditionally masculine way. So fundamentally, what is still good is the fundamentally masculine way of acting. You also, you can't have a conversation about swear words uh, and not talk about George Carlin, Uh right? Carlin had this really famous routine in 1972, the seven words you can't say on television in this order are shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, tits. What I think is really interesting about that is even the order of them. Like, you know, he thought about the rhythm of all of them. Like it ends with tits, the, I think the least offensive of the seven. But um, it rhythmically sounds like it, it it works best that way. And the the power of that bit was he didn't really sit down and like, you know, he didn't do a study of the words you can't say. There was no list of words you can't mm-hmm. say. He was just doing a comedy bit about the power of language. Mm-hmm. Carlin's point was how we imbue these words with power. Mm-hmm. Part of the bit is, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of words you can say, and then there are seven you can't. These are the words we have put a fence around and made powerful. Mm-hmm. Part of the point Carlin is making is uh, these words should not have that power. But if they didn't, it wouldn't be fun, a funny bit anymore. Like, right. uh, like them having power is useful to a writer, to an artist, to a comedian, to an actor. Right. Which, which made me wonder when they were in the documentary, when they were talking about words that the, the sort of the, the trajectory, the inevitable trajectory of these, of these words as they become less and less offensive. 
will they then become less and less effective because their efficacy lies in their offensiveness to some extent? And then, mm-hmm. and then will other words rise up to take their place? And if so, what will those words be? Because it does seem to be a feature. Well, I don't know. I defer to Russ, but it seems as though it might be a feature of language that there is a range of permissibility and there always has to be an outer edge of the impermissible. And that's where profanity is. That's where the curse words are. So if if we reclaim fuck, <laughs> what, what goes into the place of fuck? And I remember there was, um, in the documentary, they said surveys of, you know, 20-year-olds. Um, it's slurs that have taken that, that place as yeah. things that they, they think are un, unsayable, which makes sense. But I can't imagine slurs. The, the thing about fuck or damn it, or God damn it, is they can be sort of said just globally without a particular object. They can just be this, I'm talking about the situation here. Pussy doesn't work that way. Pussy is aimed at a person. Um, Dick is aimed at a person. It seems like slurs are always aimed at a a person. So I'm wondering what what will, if anything, I think inevitably something must serve that that role as just sort of a profane ejaculation, like fuck or shit. Right. We need transgressive words. In a couple of decades, shit is going to become crap. Mm-hmm. Yep. The words just become less powerful over time. The reason I keep coming back to comedians is because I think they think of the power of language maybe more than anyone in our culture, Absolutely. other than maybe playwrights, yeah. right? Absolutely. And so um, the power of a word when you say a curse word or when you don't say a curse word, right? There are clean comedians. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld said he, he there was a time when he cursed, but he found it was, a lot of comedians will say, it, it's you can get an audience to laugh, but they're not laughing at the joke exactly. They're kind of laughing at the transgression. Yes. And so if you then remove the curse word and they're not laughing, your joke wasn't actually funny, right? Like he, the challenge of making someone laugh and not cursing, certain comedians like Jerry Seinfeld will say, that's actually a bigger challenge. Mm-hmm. That's fair. And when Seinfeld would say that, you know, Jerry Seinfeld is famously a, a, clean, a more clean comedian. Um, but like my favorite stand-up comedian of all time is George Carlin. He, he, he did more with language than any other comedian because he was like an English major. He studied language and literature. And so he understood language and he never tried to be like a movie star. Like he didn't try to jump. He, he was a stand-up and a writer like his entire life, you know? So I love that this documentary focuses so much on stand-up comics. Yes. And, and how they manipulate. Cause to me, Shani you hit it on the head. There are very few, if any individuals who understand the power of curse words in particular, like people that stand up in front of other people to make them laugh and say words to make them laugh. They have to have just an, a preternatural understanding of, of censorship, of pushing the bar, of going low or going high, just a, an immense understanding of the human condition to get anything across to these strangers that are all two or three drinks in usually. <laughs> This documentary ends the last episodes on the word damn. Mm -hmm. And before I watched any of them, that already struck me as weird because it seems like the documentary is going down. Yeah, it starts with fuck. Yeah, exactly. 
I'm not even sure I would have thought of damn as a curse word at this no, point. I know. You, can, you can find that on Nickelodeon. Yeah, it's so soft now. It, it's so right. soft. But that actually is maybe my favorite episode of the show because what it talked about is, first, it reminded me that there is a category of curse words that are religious. And also, damn is referencing the idea of damning somebody. Yep. And that it used to be an extremely offensive curse word. One of the points they make is the difference between damn and goddamn. God is like implied in the word damn, but <laughs> when you don't imply it, when you just say it, you do make the word worse. Uh-huh. Who says, who just says damn? You say damn it. Right. Who doesn't say, you know, go for it. God damn it. Just if you're in for a damn, be in it for a goddamn it. I agree. It doesn't seem. <laughs> just get your goddamn shit together. You know? Goddamn it. That's my family's word, by the way. It's all over my family. God damn it is the, that's the phrase that, that one, that's the one. And my, my, my four-year-old daughter the other day, she always says, she goes, you said a bad word. I'm like, I know, I'm sorry. The other day she was, she was trying to turn on the TV and I just, my wife and I distinctly heard her say, God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's one person's fault. Mine. Damn is also one of those words that can uh, be used as a positive. If a, a Lamborghini damn. goes by, you can say damn, right? If an damn. attractive person goes by, right? It, it can like reverse itself and suddenly mm-hmm. be a reference to uh, amazement mm-hmm. or excitement. Mm-hmm. What's interesting to me about goddamn and damn and go to hell is the place of religion has changed in our culture. Very much uh, so. And I wonder if it's to such a degree that what used to be the worst curse words, these kind of religious damnation, suffer in hell for eternity words, don't have their power because religion doesn't hold the same place culturally that it used to 50, 100, 500 years ago. But then the documentary makes a really good point, you two. So a lot of, I like that they had the lexicographer and they had the the, the, um, specialist on swear words who wrote books on these things. And the lexicographer said, you know, we think that, oh, if we say G's, or cripes that were somehow we're good, but we all know in language if you just replaced the bad word with a word that sort frick is another one mm-hmm. sort of darn it darn it you're still saying you mean the bad thing, but you're censoring yourself. That does not mean that you're not saying the bad thing. If that makes sense, so like saying geez, that's Jesus. So if you're a religious person, you go oh geez, oh I can say that because oh geez, I'm not saying. Jesus, but you you are. Yes, and the documentary taught me that those are called minced oaths. M- minced oaths. Yes. Minced oaths. A minced oath. When I was growing up, I yeah. would say Jeepers Crow. Right, right. <laughs> Jeepers Crow is is a minced oath for Jesus Christ. I remember uh, there. I had some Catholic friends in college who would say sugar, honey, iced tea. <laughs> You ever heard that before? Yes. Is that a Midwestern thing? That's how Nicolas Cage starts the shit episode. Yeah. He's making iced tea. He says sugar, honey, iced tea. Yeah. I'm fascinated by minced oaths because they're still referring to the thing. It's like you you create enough of a barrier or fence or distance that if you now say shoot, even though you're it only has power because of the curse word. Right. Because right. people know what you're not saying. Right. Right. Like we still have to, it, it's almost like people, people have to say interjections. They have to curse. Right. And they found like a, it's like a loophole in curse words. And, you know, but this gets to a point about male and female, masculine, feminine, right. you know, very much like values. Like women aren't, are supposed to be seen and not heard, quiet and, and put together. And men are just allowed to be sort of wild, independent, 
insane people. And to me, that can be traced to a notion of womanhood that becomes really prominent in the 19th century, that women's roles is to make men better people. There you go. We are the civilizing force. So, so yes. if, I start, if I start saying cunt, what hope is there for the world, right? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> what hope right, is there for right. all of us? Like, yeah. The idea is like, if Ross and I say it, then hopefully a good woman will turn us around. But if women start doing it, well, then we're doomed yeah. because your your role is to uh, you know make men that's i think the perception that that's like a make make men better yeah oh and it's still prominent in the culture especially in political culture they still use that old tired behind every man is a great woman well that's right. the same tired yeah so women are saying uh, fuck this shit but it's <laughs> also but it's also tied to i mean for instance one of the things that i've most this strikes me as similar and it might not be and it's certainly not relevant to profanity per se but just in the same general line of what's 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 okay from gendered points of view one of the things i love most about the pandemic is that i can teach in genes i have never in my lifetime taught in genes right and so i am because it's not something that many of my female colleagues do but men do men do all the time but women dress up at least yeah right you're getting into a great debate about gendered expectations yes, of yes. professors. Exactly. Because um because it's it's a um in an effort to sort of establish and maintain credibility. There's the feeling yep. that you know we should dress up more. If I wear jeans, it's hard enough, right? It's hard enough to have students call me Dr. Warren or even Donut, which I don't mind, as opposed to Mrs. Warren, which I do mind. And so and, and for similar ways, I think that if a woman swore in class, as opposed to a man swearing in class, it would be very, very different. There is still sort of an inherent expectation for female professors to be maternal, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. caring, empathetic, civilizing. I like Donna's civil, the civilizing force in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, it's, it's been incredibly fun to talk to the two of you. Yes, this is great. I wasn't sure. I'm like, oh, he he wants to talk to me about swearing. I don't know. What does that mean? Does, does Shani think I'm a I'm a I'm a potty mouth? I swear like a failure, you know? This is actually an intervention, Ross. Yeah, Ross. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was a blast. Uh, yeah. you, you've helped me like think about curse words in new ways that I hadn't <laughs> thought about before. And that was exactly the point is I, I just love your insights and your thoughts and you're bringing your philosophical background and your English background to these fascinating questions. Curse words. They have so many interesting connections to the uh-huh. things we talked about. Uh, culture, race, gender, poetry, art, region, age. And it's been a blast to talk to you all about it. It's been this. wonderful. 